Hello and welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. It's great to be with you again. I'm your host, Jason Silo. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about and giving you a brief review of the new HBO Max six-part Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward documentary series directed by the actor Ethan Hawke called The Last Movie Stars. Before we get into that, just a couple introductory comments. If you're new to the podcast, on this podcast, I talk mostly about films having to do with the 70s and the 80s, the new Hollywood movement. Uh, but often I veer off into other areas of interest. This would be one of them. Obviously, Paul Newman made a lot of great films throughout every decade of his career, many of them in the new Hollywood era. Um, so that's kind of the jumping off point. But I also was very interested in the creative approach to this series and some of the questions that it raised, because I think that's what really got me piqued and interested in some of the issues raised about alcoholism and recovery or not and Hollywood careers and marriage and all kinds of interesting things that this that this film raises. So if you're new to the podcast, there is an episode of the podcast just for you. It's called If You're New to the Pod, Start Here. And that will give you some background about who I am, what this podcast is all about, different types of episodes, guest stars, topics and themes that you might find. You can check that out. Now, starting in with the last movie stars, and I apologize if you hear a bit of wind here. There's uh, I'm recording in the the full cast and crew summer studios here. Uh, it's an extremely windy and breezy day here. I've got open doors here above the garage where I'm recording this. So if you hear birds and some wind, that's where it's coming from. So The Last Movie Stars is, as I said, a six-part documentary series that seems to be a production collaboration between CNN and HBO Max, directed, as I said, by Ethan Hawke, based on transcripts from interviews that were conducted by Paul Newman's close friend and longtime screenwriter, Stuart Stern, who was the screenwriter for Rebel Without a Cause. And they interviewed almost everyone involved in Paul Newman, really in Paul Newman's life. It's, it's kind of a critical distinction here because although the documentary is presented as the story of their marriage and their working life together, and it is that to one degree, I think it's important that the underpinning of most of the information that comes out in the documentary comes from interviews conducted by Stuart Stern for a planned memoir about Paul Newman's life that Paul Newman had begun working on. And the way they begun working on it was to interview everyone about his entire life and career. And they had all of these audio tapes, uh, which they had recorded from all his directors, people who had uh, been involved in their careers, a very thorough interviewing process, which seems to have been so thorough and kind of warts and all and encouraged to be such by Paul Newman. You can kind of hear uh, Stuart Stern, the actor portraying Stuart Stern, we'll get to that in a second, assuring people. And you can hear people saying, I'm not sure if I should say this, but this is the truth. You can use this or not. So anyway, they recorded all of these interviews for use in a planned memoir. Now, later in his life, I would say, I can't remember exactly when they, I don't know if they give a date to this occurrence, but it feels certainly in the last I would say 10 or 15 years of his life, it seemed that Paul Newman thought better of this memoir. And I think there's a little bit of explanation put on screen, which says 
he got sick of the concept of investigating Paul Newman, and Paul Newman is in quotes. And so I think you can imagine Paul Newman kind of later in his life perhaps finding some of the peace of mind which maybe had eluded him all of his career or just that perspective that we that we gain through life and through living. Maybe he realized, you know, I'm not I don't want to do this. And so he burned the interview tapes at the town dump in Westport, Connecticut, which I think and this isn't a detail kind of tossed off. But to me, I, I really fixated on it because there's a lot in this series about Paul Newman as a father and his failings as a father and his self-flagellation over his failings perceived or otherwise as a father. But two things occur late in the doc series. One is that he's he goes with his daughter to the dump and it's there that he burns these tapes. And then another thing is that he comes back to the house at some other point and he burns his tuxedo in their driveway, also in front of his daughter, one of his daughters. And he's doing that according to A.E. A. E. Hotchner's book about his life and times with Paul Newman. He did that because he was symbolically putting an end to the concept of Paul Newman participating in the business of Paul Newman in Hollywood. Not that he wasn't going to act, not that he was going to turn in great performances as he did in the last part of his life, but he, he, he turned his back on the concept of the memoir and the concept of Paul Newman the participant in the Sturm und Drang of a celebrity life. So to me, that raises a pretty fundamental question right out of the gate, once you know this, about the whole reason for this documentary series to even exist. Is it within Paul Newman's wishes that this thing exists? Is it within Joanne Woodward's wishes that this thing exists? We'll cover that a little bit later in this episode. But apparently the origin story of the series is that the Newman children found transcripts that were made from the tapes before the tapes were burned. They didn't know they had these transcripts. They found them in this barn on their parents' property. And, of course, they're a revelation, right? It's a, it's a window into their parents' lives and careers uh, in hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pages of really priceless recollections from people who were there. And... This treasure trove, I guess, spurned the idea to, I should say spurred the idea to do something with them and make a documentary film out of this material. And somehow, and it's not really explained how, this they, they chose or CNN chose Ethan Hawke to be the director. Uh, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what his documentary credentials are. He certainly, I guess like many people, could understand the pressures of an acting career and a marriage, raising children. Uh, but however it happened, and again, I haven't read why it's him over some other documentary filmmaker who may or may not have done things differently. I read a few interviews where he said the family wanted this done now because Joanne Woodward is still alive. She has Alzheimer's. I guess she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's maybe in 2005 or 2007. Her mother had Alzheimer's, uh, which is talked about in the documentary. But she's still alive. And apparently these daughters, the Newman daughters, or some of them wanted to do this project while she could still experience it to some degree or another. Although Joanne Woodward is not involved in the making of the film and you don't hear her uh, in the film, except as portrayed by Laura Linney, the actor who 
is used to bring her interview materials to life. You do see a lot of Joanne Woodward, and you hear a lot from her in archival clips and materials. So what Hawk did in order to sort of solve this problem, which was, well, we have all this amazing material, but it's all printed transcripts, was he enlisted a cadre of actors. So George Clooney reads the Paul Newman interview. Laura Linney reads portions of the Joanne Woodward interview. Sam Rockwell, Zoe Kazan, Oscar Isaac, Josh Hamilton, uh, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, Billy Crudup, Brooks Ashmanskis. He reads the Gore Vidal interview, which we'll talk about in a second. So anyway, there's a cadre of actors, and you see Ethan Hawke in obvious pandemic moments, which I guess is when this project took place over the last few years. You see Ethan Hawke interacting with all these actors and talking to them about uh, these moments that they're going to act out and also just talking to them in general about the career and the, the marriage of Paul and Joanne. There are no other contemporary interviews used with anyone central or even adjacent to the Newman Woodwards uh, in the documentary. It's all culled from these transcripts that I gather were done through some portion of the 80s and 90s, let's say. And the some of the surviving, uh, some of the children of, the, of Paul Newman's two marriages, he had, I believe, two daughters and a son in his first marriage, and he had three daughters with Joanne Woodward. They had a blended family. And they had a son, Scott, who died of drug and alcohol abuse. We'll cover that in a second. It's also covered extensively in the film. There are contemporary interviews with them, but they're all sort of Zoom interviews. They're not, you know, formal interviews. And it's kind of a, you know, meta 2022 documentary project in that you see Ethan Hawke and you hear Ethan Hawke sort of coming to terms with the material and being mostly enthused by the material and talking about the material with the people he's going to use. Uh, and then you hear them bringing to life these relevant portions of the interview transcription. They also use, obviously, home movies provided by the family, photographs provided by the family. Uh, Hawk and his editorial team, who I think deserve a lot of credit here, have covered these acted out portions of the transcripts with these with these movies and photographs. I mean, they also deploy a lot of film clips using Paul and Joanne. Sometimes, regardless of the original clip's context, and we'll talk about that, but those clips are also often used to illustrate what Hawk says many, many times in the film is like, these are the actors putting their actual lives on the screen in this work. Uh, we'll, we'll interrogate that assertion a little bit later. So that's sort of the manner of the film, and it's, it's, it's of a moment. It's not wholly unique in, in using a technique like this. There's interestingly a film out right now that uses a similar technique. It's called My Old School. And it's the story of a Scottish man who went back to high school at like age 32 and pretended he was uh, of high school age. Uh, Alan Cumming lip syncs to the audio interview that the subject gave because the subject didn't want to appear on camera. And... I guess he didn't want to appear on camera. I guess it's been speculated because he has had plastic surgery to, to change his appearance and try and start a new life because this was a very controversial moment, obviously. And given that the story in that film, that film, My Old School, it's about a hoax. It's about identity. Uh, 
To me, the creative choice there has a reason for being. It suits and augments something that's already going on in the underlying story. Now, you may remember in the recent Morgan Neville Anthony Bourdain documentary caused a lot of controversy because Morgan Neville used artificial intelligence to create a version of Bourdain's voice reading from material he'd never actually read from. And his use of that device raised a lot of very worthwhile questions regarding authorial control and intent and perhaps issues of overriding reality uh, or even the wishes or the spirit of a deceased subject that you're doing a documentary about. And as noted in my episode about the Peter Jackson Beatles documentary, Get Back, Jackson and his filmmakers used a lot of AI to not only extract audio that had previously been covered by music and other sort of studio noise, but also to create visual marriages between audio and video that were not married in actuality. And as I discuss in that episode about Get Back, for me, the use of that device raised as many issues as it seems to have solved for a filmmaker like Jackson and his team in presenting something as quote-unquote truth. Now, of course, anytime you have a documentary, is it truth? No, it's, it's a version of truth. There's there are ways to approach documentaries where truth is at a premium, and there are ways to approach documentaries where the producerial hand or the directorial hand is on the till and is on the scale, and it's sort of it's it's putting forth a version of reality that is or isn't based on reality. So all of these types of films raise, to me, very interesting questions about documentary styles and what is or isn't kosher in terms of documentary truth and verisimilitude and those hands-on scales. Now, in Hawk's film, I think these questions need to be raised again, and and I I anticipate that they will be. I'm not sure if it's going to make a big enough splash to kind of get not a backlash, but kind of that second wave of attention where people say, okay, yeah, but how about we debate these questions a bit? Because I think in this film, on the one hand, there's no real immediate creative need to do what they did other than the fact that there's no audio to the interviews. So if you wanted to tell the story of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward's life, many people are dead uh, who are interviewed. So we understand that it's difficult or impossible to find period you know, film of them discussing this or audio of them discussing these lives. But there certainly are people, and there's people using the film like Martin Scorsese, who obviously worked with Paul Newman on Color of Money. Um, There are people you could interview who could perhaps provide some of this information. Uh, There are perhaps more interesting interviews and in-depth interviews with his children that could have been used. But, you know, he could have chosen more of a Ken Burns type approach where you have a famous voice reading from a source. But Interestingly, it made me realize that's very different from what the actors are doing here. You know, Ken Burns, let's say, you know, in the Civil War doc series is where he made this famous. You know, he's using famous voices, but he's not making, it's not like, it it kind of, for me, started the game that we play in my home called Celebrity Voice, where you have to try to identify the celebrity voice because it wasn't like he was putting a Chiron on screen saying, you know, Sam Waterston. Um, you had to figure that out. And in a way, it, it it kept the focus on the source material. And because they were largely reading from letters, these were not performative. They were, 
read for clarity. And yes, there was some emotion imbued or some humor imbued based on the, the text, but they weren't acted. And the use of actors here inherently means there are choices, a lot of choices being made by the actors, by Ethan Hawke, by the editors. And I think it's fair to say that any long-form interview transcript used here, we would really need to have heard or read this thing in its entirety to make sure that the nuance and the contexts are being fairly applied when we have these acted portions presented for our viewing pleasure, and they're so importantly presented. Like, in other words, there's really, really important things like the death of a child or Paul Newman's alcoholism or tensions in their marriage that are being discussed. And these quotes are used to present a version of those stories that, to me, puts a lot of weight to make sure that nuance and context are being fairly applied here. Now, of course, we're viewers. There's no way for us to know or trust that that was done, except, I guess, in some way that is apparent to me in some of the choices that some of the actors make. And we'll talk about that when we talk a bit about the cast. But the film itself never makes clear that those steps of nuance and context were taken. And I think anecdotally, I'd say the film doesn't really feel overall like Ethan Hawke really did apply a meticulous process in the use of these transcripts. Maybe he did, but if he did, I think he could have done a little bit more to show us that he did that. Whereas I think what you feel most throughout the entire thing from him is a very first blush of enthusiastic excitement. You don't feel a measured kind of interaction with things, even though his process of coming to terms with the materials and the stories is part of the documentary series as we go through that. So that's basically how the film is set up and how it came to be. Now, as to the film itself, if I was giving you a review, is it worth your time? Yes, it's worth your time. Um, it's ultimately very moving, maybe not in the way Ethan Hawke intended, but I think in much the way my wife reminded me this morning, there's a brilliant part of the film where someone's discussing that in a marriage you have, uh, you have one person and another person, but then you have a third thing, which is the marriage itself. And that's kind of above and beyond the, the, the sum of the two people. It's a third thing. And there's, there's a really interesting part of Joanne Woodward's interview where I think she talks, again, portrayed by Laura Linney, where she's talking about she and Paul, at some point in their marriage, having to come to terms with the fact that they could either struggle with his ego, they could struggle with her ego, or they could pay attention to their collective ego, I guess the ego of their marriage. Now, to me, that's a really telling and interesting quote, because on the one hand, it sort of acknowledges like, hey, look, uh, there's you, there's me, and then there's us. Let's focus on us. And to some extent, the us that they focused on had to have some of the types of Hollywood truths and realities that I think marriages of this sort have to sort out, which is, you know, he's a huge movie star. She's a phenomenally talented actor. I think it was a shorthand that people could say that, like, she's the better actor. He's the bigger star. And pretty much she acknowledges and says that and he acknowledges and says that, too, in various ways throughout the course of this film series and also some talk show clips and whatnot, things that we see. Uh, now, is it as simple as that? No, of course not. But is there truth to it? Yes. However, 
stardom, film stardom, acting stardom. I mean, it's a mercurial thing. You cannot define it. You cannot create it. It exists. It happens to someone. I mean, watching this in the beginning, when you're sort of reading about Paul Newman being in, uh, you know, the actor's uh, workshop with Marlon Brando and, and James Dean and being very much, you know, third banana to both of those, to both of those actors at the time. And you've come to learn enough about Paul Newman's inherent lack of self-confidence, maybe a bit of an imposter syndrome thing going on. But when James Dean was killed, that created an opportunity for Paul Newman that he would not have otherwise had. And the film basically makes the point that that was the break that launched Paul Newman into stardom. Whereas before that, he probably would have uh, lagged, continued to lag behind someone like a James Dean, who for, again, whatever reason people catch the imagination of the public, James Dean had done that. Well, James Dean was now gone. That created a space that Paul Newman's career could occupy. That's sort of the shorthand of the documentary. Again, the truth is probably a lot more nuanced and subtle than that, but to some extent, those are the broad strokes. So this film, you know, it left me ultimately with a renewed appreciation for and and also a much deeper sense of sadness for Paul Newman. I mean, I've always been a big Paul Newman fan. You've probably heard me talk about him here on, on the pod many, many times. You know, I've read a couple books about Paul Newman. I know the broad strokes of the life. Uh, I know enough to know why he appeals to me uh, as a star, as an actor. You know, some of his later films... Uh, particularly The Verdict, are just, uh, it's monumental. I mean, The Verdict is a tour de force. Um, It's Paul Newman at his absolute best. It's Paul Newman bringing what he contained so fully to the screen. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But, you know, I, I... as much as the film is 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 supposedly the story of their marriage and is the story of her as much as the story of him, like... Again, you can just feel for Ethan Hawke, for the large, for a lot of the largely male kind of white actors that are used here. It's Paul Newman that that tilts the universe to him, much like in their marriage. You know, his stardom tilts the universe towards his side of the ledger sheet. There's just an unavoidable reality to that, and I think it does make you really appreciate. The life and the career of Joanne Woodward. It shows you that she did really f- strong work throughout her career, even when she was quote unquote reduced to appearing in movie of the week TV movies. She's doing so in topical TV TV movies that are addressing weighty concepts. And it seems from the clips that are used that she always turned in really strong work. Um which to me runs a little counter to the narrative put forth in the film many times that, you know, well, she had to give up her career and raise the kids while he was a movie star. Well, if you look at her IMDb page, there's not many years where she didn't work. Now, I'm not saying that she didn't put her career on hold, per se, but I'm saying there's a larger reality towards, you know, female uh, actors in Hollywood uh, having, you know, a lot more difficulty than straight white male actors in Hollywood do in maintaining long careers. 
You know, how many Meryl Streep careers are there? You know, there's not a lot. This is the industry. The industry is built on some fundamental faulty things, uh, some sexist things, some ageist things. And those things often are double standards that don't apply to male stars, but are ruthlessly applied to female careers. So there's all that that's going on there. But this this film kind of takes pains, I think, to say, hey, she gave up her career for the family so that he could be the movie star that he was. And I'm not sure it's quite that simple, but I think that's how I think the film, this documentary film, puts that away. So the sadness I said that I felt for Paul, I mean, there's two things the film takes on. And because the film takes them on, I think I can discuss them here, even though these are such personal things to Paul Newman and his family that it's kind of like, okay, if you're going to open up this conversation about his son, Scott's death from drug and alcohol abuse, um, how do you treat it? How is it presented in the documentary? And it's fair to interrogate the thought process that we can discern behind how that's presented. Um, and I think the other is Paul's alcoholism, which really, I don't want to say takes over the latter three or so episodes of the film, but it's once it's introduced, it's very hard to get away from. And the filmmakers don't really get away from it, even though they kind of try in a comic moment I'll mention in, in a second. But his, the awareness that I have uh, in general, uh, as, as someone who's been sober for 17 years in my life, the awareness that I have of, of, of his alcoholic life and how that greatly contributed to some of the upheaval and the discord that he experienced in his life as a man, as a husband, as an actor, as a father, uh, I relate to that stuff. I think I understand it. And um, I think the film doesn't. And we'll talk about that in a second. But those two, those are the two heavy emotional things that the film decides to get into. Again, this is a film produced very much, you can tell, with the involvement of the of the family and the daughters, the daughters, I should say. Um, and so the choices that are made are very specific choices. And it's impressive to bring these subjects into the public light and to address them in any way and to expect probably the nuance that I would want these stories treated with is is maybe unfair but i'll talk a bit about that more in a second so the other thing the series does very well is it makes the contemporary viewer uh and admirer of paul newman the movie star uh really realize at least for me how much my feeling about him is shaped by the work in really the last part of his life and career you know um these <laughs> these um these films that, you know, I think um, we think of, or at least I think of, like I said, you know, whether it's The Verdict, um, Nobody's Fool, you know, Color of Money, Road to Perdition, Hudsucker Proxy, not mentioned at all. I, I loved him in Hudsucker Proxy. Obviously, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge is referenced all the time and talking about their marriage because it's a portrayal of a marriage. Uh, Absence of Malice, Slapshot, you know. These are all movies that Newman made in the 70s, the 80s. 
uh, and some in the 2000s. And, you know, those, those performances, like, uh, I would say Absence of Malice, The Verdict, The Color of Money, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, Nobody's Fool, Road to Perdition. I mean, those are those are amazing, mature acting performances. And that's not to say that all of the many, many, many roles that happened before that are not great acting performances. But, you know, for every Hustler, for every HUD, for every Cool Hand Luke, for every Butch Cassidy, if you want to put that in that tier, there's a lot for every Sting. You know, there's a Towering Inferno. Uh, there's a quintet, which is a Robert Altman movie I'd never even heard of, even having read a very exhaustive oral biography of Robert Altman. I don't think I'd ever even heard of quintet, which is a Robert Altman dystopian science fiction film that's used very dubiously in this documentary series. But, and look, Paul Newman made a lot of shit. Okay. It's, it's, that's not, I'm not, that's not a hot take. I mean, that's just a fact. Um, I think you can look at his career and, you know, akin to maybe a De Niro uh, or a Michael uh, Michael Caine, you know, actors who, for them, the the process of acting is the moment. You know, I'm, I'm preparing right now for an episode on the 1970s iconic teen film Over the Edge, and Jonathan Kaplan has an amazing quote in one of the documentary features where he sits his young teenage cast down and he says, I want you all to understand one thing. This is the thing. This process that we're going through every day here making the film, that's the process. If you're waiting for like you to see yourself on the big screen six months from now, that's an unrealistic expectation. This film might not even come out. So this is the thing. This is the process. This is what we're here for. And it, it really made me think that if you think about film acting that way or acting that way, you know, it's like stand-up comedy. I mean, the moment on stage, how long is that for most comics? 15 minutes? Um, that's the thing you're living for. If you're an actor, the the acting is is the thing, or I guess should be the thing that you live for, right? The process of acting, being on a set, being on a stage, performing. Um, so, I always have a lot of room for actors like De Niro or Michael Caine who kind of get stick for working on a whole bunch of films, many of which are not what we would say are quote unquote good. But, you know, man, they're working. I mean, it's a job and they're working. And yes, it's a craft and an art. And yes, they often turn in amazing performances. But, man, they also pay the bills and that's okay, too. There's a great moment in the film where Paul Newman is shown on the junket for towering inferno and the interviewer asks him why did you decide to make this and without even answering it's just so obvious that the answer blazing in paul newman's iconic blue eyes is for the money but of course he can't say that so he offers some bullshit explanation about well it's different it's trying to present action and drama through height and fire it's a hilarious quote it's used to hilarious effect so you will observe bits of most every film that Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward made, the 16 films that they made together that he directed five of. Um, you will see a lot of Joanne Woodward's work in films. And Zoe Kazan, I think, bravely admits in her Zoom, she says to Ethan Hawke, you know, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with any of her, her performances. And he says, well, I don't think you're alone in that. 
So for that, it's a welcome introduction to the work of this phenomenal actor, Joanne Woodward, who who always continued to do great work in any available medium through her life. And she talks very, uh, or uh, again, I keep saying she talks. She doesn't talk. Laura Linney talks as her and makes choices in those passages which lead us to think a certain way about her thoughts about her life and her career. And so while the series never shakes some of what I think are kind of the unfortunate aspects of this device used to bring these interview transcripts to life, it does generate a sense of power and emotion as it goes uh, goes along and especially through its final two or three episodes. But for me, there's also a sense of something missed here that with all this archival material um, that maybe a more rigorous and educated mind. And I mean, educated in the sense that educated about the things that were at issue for Paul Newman, particularly the death of his son and his alcoholism. Um, I think that a, a more knowledgeable approach about those things, because those are the emotional uh it's not high points is not the right word. Low points isn't the right word. But I mean, those are the two massive things at issue for Paul Newman in his life. His alcoholism and the death of his son and what that death said to him, confirmed, said, intimated about his parenting. Those are the two most important emotional moments that happen in this film. And to me, Ethan Hawke did not show that he understands those things enough to really present them on screen without acknowledging what he doesn't understand about those things. Now, that may be a little too inside baseball for people. I don't know. Um, But I feel like there's examples of very telling moments that are used, but they're not presented as importantly as, you know, Billy Crudup reading a transcript is, or, or Brooks Ashmankas reading a Gore Vidal quote is given more import sometimes than footage of Joanne having a really difficult time in a film that Paul Newman is directing her in and you're watching them interact. Like, that's the thing we want more of. This is like two people who don't know they're being watched. And these are two people whose professional life is about being watched. Well, here's a moment where they don't really know they're being watched. The camera's far away and they're kind of, they're, they're rehearsing. But he doesn't use much of that. Um, and I, and I wondered why. So another thing is it's, it's, there's, it's kind of ironic for a documentary. So obviously concerned with what it considers to be the importance of acting in all caps acting that in the very first episode, Joanne is quoted as saying, acting is like sex. You should do it, not talk about it. But then everyone, (laughs) Everyone that Ethan Hawke brings aboard really does nothing but talk about it for the next eight hours. Uh, It's kind of truer words never spoken than by Joanne Woodward. It's one of those moments where you're kind of like, is this the type of thing these people would have really trucked with? Um, When you watch Paul Newman appear with David Letterman late in his life, and they had a great friendship. Uh, It's a great, great example of that friendship in uh, the David Letterman episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, where Paul Newman, who's obviously a famous race car driver, uh, he had souped up a Volvo station wagon with like a race car engine. And he gifted this car to David Letterman at the end of his life. And David Letterman, I think, 
is driving that car when he picks up Jerry Seinfeld and he tells some funny anecdotes about his friendship with Paul Newman. They're both Connecticut Fairfield County residents. So anyway, talking about acting, oh my God. I think that you can love acting. You can love great performances. You can love trying to break down the nuances of it all. But I think in this film, far too often, Ethan Hawke results to sort of saying, which he says at least three or four times, he's putting his real life right there on the screen. Well, you don't know that. I mean, you just don't know that. And to put that much import on it, I think it'd be more appropriate to say, I found a clip that seems to address exactly the thing I'm talking about in his personal life, or at least that these other people are talking about in relation to his personal life. So the whole thing does suffer from this general kind of gee whiz, everything is amazing attitude that we really have to ascribe to Ethan Hawke because he's the one who embodies it. You know, I think any creative endeavor right, starts with this flush of enthusiasm for something. It consumes you. You willingly spend all day and night thinking about this idea that you have. You over-enthusiastically chirp about it to anyone and everyone. Now, at least for me, that's a part of a process. And eventually, that settles into a more nuanced relationship with your creative endeavor. Uh, sometimes you might be feel apathy or neglect towards this idea or this project. Sometimes you might consider other ways to approach it. But eventually, I find that after that first flush of enthusiasm, which gets this water wheel spinning and can set things in motion so that you can follow through and undertake an idea, for me, that's followed by nuance and balance and sort of an after the first flush process. Now, this documentary series to me seems perpetually set in Ethan Hawke's first overexcited moment of discovery of how amazing it all is. And I think it suffers as a result because I think you can see that in Paul Newman's life and in his work at the end of his life, he's a different person. He feels more at ease in his skin in some ways, but there's also things that were never resolved. And the documentary patches over those, those things, particularly his ongoing alcoholism, um, and sort of presents us with what feels like what he hoped was a solution, but it, what Ethan Hawke hoped was like, okay, that's over. They, they got through that rough patch in their marriage, but then you can see plenty of evidence or hear plenty of evidence that, well, the drinking continued. Um, so there's things like that that to me speak to a lack of nuance and balance after this first flush of excitement. And it also uses and has tricks so that he makes sure you feel the emotions he wants you to feel. I mean, we've talked about this in the episode before. Uh, a lot of directors will talk really intelligently about the fact that, you know, a director in a film can make an audience feel whatever they want through a use of a song. Because the song, unlike a piece of dialogue or just an image, somehow can contain much deeper volumes of emotional nuance than just images or dialogue can on its own. You know, this is a criticism that we talked about in our episode with Becca Faulkner uh, on Harold and Maud, because at the time, and I think still it's fair to say that Hal Ashby ginned up a lot of the emotion in the film through using the Cat Stevens songs. It's the Cat Stevens songs that are so amazingly emotionally deep. Not necessarily what's going on on screen. Now, is that a cheat? 
Is that a trick? I'm going to say yes. I think that when I respond most to score or use of songs, it's always the opposite of heavy-handed. Here, particularly in the first episode, Ethan Hawke is using songs that just wave a giant flag telegraphing the emotion he clearly feels and that he clearly wants to make sure you feel. To me, that's not the same thing as getting you there independently of the tricks of the trade. And and ironically, you know, Paul Newman himself can, would, and did acknowledge his own reliance on tricks like this throughout much of his career. Uh, I think that's part of this, what makes Paul Newman an interesting star is he never wore it easily. Uh, To me, when I think of Paul Newman, if you think about him, all his great performances are not about overconfidence. He doesn't exude a Tom Cruise vibe, for example. He doesn't exude a James Caan vibe. He doesn't exude an Al Pacino vibe, uh, a De Niro vibe, right? He, he's, it's this battle within himself that he talks about, which is I'm not good enough. Um, that's the thing that fuels all these great performances. I mean, just watch Color of Money. You know, it's all about kind of realizing you are an overconfident idiot and stopping this thing that would have killed you and then picking it up again with the benefit of hindsight on your own terms and finding a hard-won confidence instead of a cocky, self-assured confidence that wasn't earned. Like, in The Verdict, Paul Newman is undergoing an alcoholic redemption story on screen. And his own struggles are clearly uh, informing that. Uh, We'll talk about that in a second. But to me, there's a few too many tricks employed here to get you to feel something that Ethan Hawke wants you to feel. And I'm not saying this. I think Ethan Hawke is a very well-intentioned director here. I I, I think his enthusiasm is touching and merited. Um, I don't, I, I think it's easy to make fun of and people will, but I would never make fun of genuine enthusiasm for the types of nuance that he's trying to discuss here throughout these episodes. Uh, but I just think there's, again, in those two key places, if he'd gotten those, what I would say is right, I'd be a lot more forgiving. But to me, he doesn't. Um, so it suffers a little bit or even a lot in places from that same overblown sense of acting self-importance that the Oscars telecast has suffered from for years. You know, the idea of acting in capital letters. Um, that is a little, you know, hard to take for me. You may like that stuff. Uh, there's a really striking quote, uh, and this is one of the things I, I do praise Ethan Hawke for doing because there are, this is kind of why I'm frustrated a little bit about those two sections, the son Scott's death and the alcoholism, because there are places where he finds just the right quote to, um, to illustrate something that's so nuanced and interesting about acting. I wish there was more of this kind of thing. There's a, there's a great quote from Sidney Poitier who did a film with Newman, um, 
kind of it's presented in the film as if he's kind of saying that Paul Newman was the former and not the latter. But he basically says, you know, there are some actors who are incredible technicians. And when you see them on stage or on screen, he says they are quite capable of making you realize and have a way of reminding you that you're watching a terribly gifted, incredible technician on stage or on screen, right? That the, the ego is, is present. And he said there's some actors have a uh, soul, which erases the sense of you watching something and replaces it with a musical ability that you can get lost in music while you can get lost in someone's performance. And Ethan Hawke is talking to someone and that person says, well, do you, I think it's Josh Hamilton. And Josh Hamilton says, well, do you think he's saying, wh- which one do you think he's saying Paul is? And Ethan says like, well, I think if he thought Paul was the latter, the sole actor, he would have said it, but he didn't. Um, it got me thinking of examples of both of those. What's an example of the former, right? The technician where you see them and you're thinking, and they're reminding you, you're watching a great actor at work. Uh, is it Pacino? Is he kind of like that? Is that that theatricality, that showiness part of that? When I thought of the soul part, um, and, and maybe this is because he's been in the news because it's the anniversary of his death, uh, but also someone that this film series made me think about was Philip Seymour Hoffman. Because Philip Seymour Hoffman, to me, is an actor who erases the sense that I'm watching an actor and replaces it with the ability to get lost in the performance, as Sidney Poitier so perfectly says. Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, in any of these roles, you know, it's such an irony, of course, that he too suffered from addiction, like Paul, uh, in his case, one that would be the means of his untimely death. And... I think there's an issue that the issue, this issue isn't raised in the Newman series, the Newman Woodward series, but it was raised for me when I was thinking about Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I think it's relevant to what perhaps maybe prevented Paul Newman from pursuing sobriety in his life. Um, That's never addressed in the film. If he ever tried to get sober through a program of sobriety, as opposed to just stopping drinking. Um, But, you know, this concept of alcoholic fear linked to creativity, right? That, man, if I get sober, I won't be able to be the the artist, the actor, the painter, the musician that I was. That's what I need. That stuff fuels me. And, of course, the irony is that usually if alcoholics and addicts do get sober, they, they more often than not find a deeper truth in their life and their work. But it's understandable that it's so terrifying to wonder what's on the other side of sobriety that most people can't ever take the leap to find out. Um, I think if you look at addicts and alcoholics and what they accomplish, and they do talk about this in the film, you know, I think someone says in the film, it's, it's almost harder to be married to a, to what they call a highly functioning alcoholic, which kind of makes me laugh. But Uh, we do use as a society this concept of the high-functioning alcoholic who I guess keeps their job and keeps their family and, you know, gets up and swims in the river and plunges their face into ice water, things that Paul Newman did to deal with his hangovers and his puffiness. But they still show up. They still do the work, you know, as if if showing up is enough. Uh, But what it doesn't address is the fact that you're not present even though you showed up. And it's usually the case that it's more impressive that they accomplished anything at all through drinking and using because alcoholics and addicts are very industrious people. <laughs> and um, 
you know, they can accomplish great things, even saddled with the power of denial. And so if, you know, as is said in the series, if Paul Newman passes out drunk at Christmas Eve and leaves Joanne to decorate the entire tree in the house and get the dinner ready for the whole family, well, he still gets up at dawn and he swims in the river and he's never late for work and he's always prepared. And, you know, this is what he and every other alcoholic in the history of the world tells themselves when they're trying to convince themselves that the booze isn't getting in the way. Of course, that's just a lie that the, the, the disease tells us. And as I said, that wall of fear of what will, who will I be on the other side if I take this step is often way too scary uh, for, for a lot of alcoholics and addicts to venture to. And the irony, of course, is that if they did do it, if Philip Seymour Hoffman did get and stay sober, he'd be probably such an amazing sober person and be such be such a better actor than he even was, which is almost scary to contemplate, right? So there's a lot of that. Now let's talk a little bit about the cast that's used here. Um, Zoe Kazan, I want to talk about the people that really I thought were amazing in this. That, again, these are voice performances, even though you do see them on screen sometimes talking, but these are largely voice performances. I thought Zoe Kazan as Newman's first wife, Jackie, really resisted a lot of actorly theatrics and felt so truthful even if she wasn't delivering an impression. I don't know if she was or she wasn't. I think Jackie Witt, who was the first wife of Paul Newman, died, I think, in 1994. So we don't see any contemporary footage of her to compare Zoe Kazan to. But I don't know how to describe it other than it feels like truth. You know, it feels um, like she did the work. It feels like she read the entirety of a transcript. And when bringing specific sections of a transcript to life, She's applying what she read and knew about the entirety of the transcript and the person revealed in that to that moment. And again, I have no way of knowing this is or isn't true, but if, if great acting is truth, she is delivering truth and she is great. And I think that interview is so sensitively handled and importantly handled um, because you're talking to the first wife, you're talking to the ex-wife, you're talking to the jilted wife who Paul Newman had an affair with Joanne Woodward for five years uh, while he was still married to Jackie Witt. You he, you do hear some of the hurt feelings of uh, some of the children from that first marriage uh, presented in the documentary. I thought Zoe Kazan did a fantastic job uh, with all of these sections, and I thought she really... Um, just, I can't say it any better. It's truthful. It's emotional. It doesn't, it resists cliche. Uh, it's really important to this success of this documentary series that she be good, and she is. Sam Rockwell does uh, Stuart Rosenberg, who directed a number of Paul Newman films, including Cool Hand Luke. And again, same same thing. Like, this feels like an intelligent actor who did the work to make sure that his readings got at a truth that might be largely present elsewhere in these transcripts of the Stuart Rosenberg interview. Uh, He brings to life this nuance. And I think particularly what he does very well is there are moments in transcripts where Stuart Rosenberg is sort of hemming and hawing over whether he should or shouldn't say something. And it's easy to sort of think about cutting that part out because it's not substantive in a way. But on the other hand, the way Sam Rockwell delivers conversational pause or delay 
it's imbued with what Stuart Rosenberg is wrestling with, which is, I don't want to hurt these people. I don't want to hurt my friends, but this is the truth. And in the way he does those stutters and the way he does those those pauses and and stops and starts, he really conveys that. And again, that's super, super important. Jonathan Mark Sherman, the playwright, uh, does the director Martin Ritt. Again, an excellent performance. Josh Hamilton, really good as George Roy Hill, um, who obviously directed uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. And Tom McCarthy as Sidney Lumet is so good. Now, there's probably a lot of Sidney Lumet who did like to talk about this stuff, talking about Paul Newman. So it's one of these places where you kind of, I've, I've heard a lot of Sidney Lumet talking because we've done a couple Sidney films on the on the podcast. Um, so, but Tom McCarthy, the director, the actor, who has made some fantastic films that I really admire and appreciate. And Sidney Lumet is, is so smart about actors and about filmmaking uh, and about human nature and was the director of The Verdict. And Tom McCarthy brings to life these Sidney Lumet quotes, both sounding like Sidney Lumet in a great way, um, but also really doing service to what Sidney Lumet is talking about. And there's an amazing part in, I think, the sixth episode where they do spend some time talking about The Verdict, not as much as I would like, because to me, that's such a monumental touchstone of a film. But there's a great section where Sidney Lumet talks about the fact that Paul showed up and was kind of going through it, and Sidney had to pull him aside and say, look, it's not working. Why? And Paul sort of said, well, it's the lines, Sidney. You know, I can't remember the lines. And Sidney says, that's bullshit. It's not the lines. It's you. You have to decide how much of you you're going to bring here to this part. It's all up to you. And it's presented as if that was the thing that that – I guess, spurred Paul Newman to put maybe some of his own struggles with alcoholism into this part. Uh, it's certainly how Ethan Hawke takes it, uh, because I think that's another moment where he says sort of enthusiastically to someone, you know, he's he's putting his real life in the part. Um, maybe, maybe not, you know, but uh, he's really, really good. Now, if we're going to talk about who's good. We have to talk about, I hate to use the word bad. Um, but uh, let's just say some of the vocal performances that I think for me got in the way of appreciating maybe what uh, substance there was in the transcript. Like these people I just mentioned never got in the way of the quote that they were bringing to life. These people I'm going to mention almost always to me got in the way of the quote they were bringing to life. And unfortunately, I have to mention the two people who represent the two most important people in the process, which is Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. So George Clooney is doing Paul Newman. And Laura Linney is doing the Joanne Woodward things. Now, it's first kind of off-putting because in the first episode, Laura Linney is sort of talking about them as if she knew them and she was their intimate friend. And you're kind of like, Wait, did Laura Linney know Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward this well? Like, it's never explained until almost the very last part of the last episode, where you learn that okay, as a young actor in New York, she was very she was briefly a part of an acting class that Joanne Woodward taught in their New York City apartment, and that she appeared with Joanne in a TV movie. But since this is withheld until the last episode, 
throughout the first five episodes, whenever Ethan Hawke is sort of cuts to her and she's talking about them, you're kind of like, why, why am I listening to Laura Linney tell me about this marriage? Now, in fact, when you do realize what, what part of Joanne's life she was, it's not even enough to, to feel that she's an authority on some of these things that she talks about. So that's just sort of a confusing device. And it's kind of like whenever I heard her reading Joanne Woodward, it's just like Laura Linney reading. It's Laura Linney reading. It's Laura Linney acting. It just, it took me out of it. I don't know why. Same thing with Clooney. Um, It just wasn't a good fit for some reason. I, I don't know if anyone could have been a good fit for the two principals. I think it's a thankless job probably because to do... Um, you know, Martin Ridd or George Roy Hill or Sidney, Lu- Sidney Lumet or Stuart Rosenberg or Jackie Witt. I mean, these are not people that we already know and, and, and hear talking a lot. So I guess that's easier, quote unquote. But again, the truth of what those people got to me isn't a question of ease. It's a question of approach. And Laura Linney and Clooney, unfortunately, took me out of this every time they were on screen. Not on screen. Every time their voice was on screen. It took me out of it, and it's supposed to draw me further in. Uh, Brooks Ashmanskish. Um, he's doing Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal gives this whole thing its name. It's a very dubious quote that he said of them, that they were the last movie stars, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, we still have movie stars. Um, he's doing an impersonation. And and more than that, he's doing a caricature of an impersonation. Gore Vidal already is such an untrustworthy narrator to me that anything he has to say should be taken with a grain of salt. And it certainly shouldn't be presented and relied upon as strenuously as it is here. Uh, and his caricature of Gore Vidal's voice is like Vincent Price in a Roger Corman B picture. It's ridiculous and unnecessary, and it's it's. Uh, he seems to also be the only Zoom interviewee who has his softening filter on, so that didn't work, and it's used a lot. You know, um, Vincent Vincent D'Onofrio does Carl Malden who kind of only has one one bite that I can think of that's used, but he does do a little interesting bit about uh, acting with and without the method, which I guess is useful, although it does bring to mind the iconic and probably apocryphal, uh, you know, Marathon Man anecdote of, you know, my dear boy, have you ever tried acting? Redford is such an important counterbalance to Newman. And in the books that I've read about Paul Newman, there's a really fascinating uh, difference between these two stars of their era. You know, both really noted throughout their career for their looks, but had very different approaches to themselves and their looks, which I think in a nutshell can be ascribed to the fact that Paul Newman struggled with alcoholism throughout his whole life and never felt he was good enough, had imposter syndrome, which is this idea that you're going to be found out as lacking, that everyone's going to realize the truth about yourself that you and you alone know. Redford had different struggles, but that wasn't his struggle. Uh, Redford was a little bit more comfortable in his own skin uh, and had more 
day-to-day comfort with his ego, I would say, in a way that didn't harm him as much as it seemed to have harmed Paul Newman and his turmoil. So Alessandro Nivola does Redford. And again, uh, I think Redford's comments about Paul Newman are probably really interesting and worthwhile, but that, that performance didn't work. And another strange thing that I, that I noticed uh, the New York Times review talked about and a couple of reviews have talked about is that part of this enthusiasm thing I was talking about is that there's a lot of bad movies talked about here as if they're kind of good and amazing and important. And if you watched these movies, you'd be like, uh, okay. I mean, there is not a filter for kind of what is good and what is not here. Uh, of course, it's easy to take a pot shot as something like the Towering Inferno, but hey, at least the Towering Inferno knows what it is and doesn't try to be anything else. Um, there's a lot of movies Paul Newman made that try to be something else and, and failed. But there's a lot of bad movies talked about here as if they have something really important to say about the marriage or what's going on off screen. And I just don't think you can rely on that. OK, I want to talk a little bit more about some of this difficult stuff it gets into with the death of his son and his struggle with alcohol. Um, you know, in a, this is the thing I took away from reading a couple books about Paul Newman. Um, he knew that he was getting by on his looks a lot. And he knew he wasn't as good as everyone thought he was. He knew he wasn't all that he was cracked up to be. In that way, he's kind of your average run-of-the-mill alcoholic. These are common, these are common alcoholic traits for anyone who struggles with the disease. Now, he's also self-aware enough to be to understand and to articulate that his exceptional looks made his life easier, and that, as he says throughout the film, or his his avatar says throughout the film, um, you know luck was a big thing. He, he's, he's understanding that, that luck had so much to do with his life. And so when the film finally gets to his alcoholism, it, it, it starts to tackle it in a way that I think is, is meaningful and moving. There are things that, that some of his daughters say, Clea Newman uh, has some really heartrending quotes about the distance that I think she felt in their relationship because of his alcoholism. Um, and it's really moving and it's, it's really, um, it's powerful and it makes you feel for, for what Paul Newman was going through. But then <laughs> we pivot bizarrely from alcoholism to this really po-faced maudlin hagiography about his civil rights work. Like what? Like literally it, it pivots like there's this there's it's in the same section of the of the episode. It's like, wow, here's here's some of the ways that alcohol were a problem for Paul Newman and a problem for Joanne Woodward and some of the things that were going on in the relationship. Oh, but here he is with Martin Luther King and here he is talking pretentiously on talk shows about civil rights and racism. And I couldn't help but thinking. You know, this is what people do, right? If people are children of alcoholics or they marry an alcoholic, they sort of admit and they acknowledge the problem, but then they always begin covering the window they just opened with these good deeds and the intentions of the alcoholic. It's almost as if Ethan Hawke is like 
he feels bad that he had to start talking about Paul Newman's alcoholism. So he has to then immediately pivot to Paul Newman, civil rights pioneer, when really the more important conversation in the concept of the documentary is the alcoholism. You know, I have a friend who's also in recovery who says that when he was drinking, he was always really could never understand why people didn't judge him on what his intentions were rather than the wreckage that his actions caused. He didn't want to be judged on what he did. He was like, why don't they understand what I, what I, what my intentions were? And it's such a great example of how the alcoholic mind thinks. And there are other sources like A.E. Hotchner's book and Hotchner is the guy who with Paul Newman, they came up together with the Newman's own concept, and they were both Westport people, and Hushner was a writer, and they were friends for 50 years. And, you know, in his book that he wrote after Paul's death, um, he talks a lot about what was going on with Paul's alcoholism, what was going on with his son, Scott, um, and and it's very poignant, and, and it's not really used here. Um, it's not really used in the film, and I think there are more parts of that that would have illuminated this part of Paul Newman's life. Um, and in this, and then when they kind of pick up the alcoholism thing again, you know, there's this moment where Joanne gives an ultimatum to Newman at their home in California. She takes the children, and he he comes and knocks on the door after a particularly bad night of drinking, and she says, "You don't live here anymore. This is not your home." And he says, well, I have nowhere to go. And I think one of the children says, I don't remember if it was one night, two nights, or two weeks, but he just slept in the driveway. And then finally he knocks on the door and he says, okay, how about just giving up hard alcohol? Because she had said, you need to stop drinking in order to come home. And he says, well, how about hard alcohol? And she says, okay. And in the way it's treated in the film, it's presented like a win for Joanne Woodward and the children that like, Well, he didn't stop drinking, but he agreed to give up hard alcohol. And there's just no apparent awareness from the filmmakers here that this is not a victory. It's just an alcoholic's trick. It's just uh, it's just damning the family to further chaos of the chains that bind all alcoholic families. And that's kind of one of the moments where I think there's a there's a there's a piece of what a director needed to know if they really are going to tackle the subject of Paul Newman's alcoholism and its effect on his family and his children. Uh, and it's, and I, I will say it's unsparingly presented. I mean, his children say things like, I didn't feel like I was important to him. Uh, there are very, very difficult uh, moments presented where he's unable to talk to his son, Scott, about these things even though he very, very much wants to. Now, the reason he can is that he is an alcoholic himself. So he's not present enough to be able to help his son. He doesn't have his own clarity. And he's very articulate in some of his quotes about, you know, what he wished he could have done to help his son. Now, there's a tough love approach to some recovery programs that I think alcoholics often need. And the tough love approach is, well, Paul, there is something you could have done. You could have gotten sober yourself. Okay, that would have at least been the least and the most you could have done to try to help your son and help your family. But you didn't do that. And the heartbreak and the sadness that I mentioned feeling for Paul Newman is that, you know, sobriety, recovery, a program of sobriety, it isn't for everyone who needs it. 
It's only for those people who want it. And it sounds like at that time, and maybe throughout his life, he just couldn't find his way to want it enough. It sounds like he probably figured out how to make accommodations in his marriage, in his parenting, and in his life to fit it around his drinking. But it doesn't sound like it was ever conquered or that he was ever free from it. And in fact, there's kind of the way that anecdote is presented as like a win for the family that, oh, he won't drink hard alcohol. Later, I think in the last episode, there's this heartwarming moment presented where they they renew their wedding vows. And it's presented kind of like, you know, he had the benefit of hindsight now and he had matured. And I'm sure he had. But the photo is them at the reception having renewed their vows. And the first thing prominently visible is a can of Budweiser right next to Paul Newman's hand. So, again hearing him talk about it. I'm not putting this on this. This is all in his own words, his own struggle, his own inner battle with his alcoholism and the way it's discussed and presented on screen by his daughters, by his intimates who are discussing it, by his directors. These, this is not me placing this on this. These are all in his own words. Um, he sounds like someone who spent a hell of a lot of time thinking about worrying about his drinking and knew he was an alcoholic, but wasn't able to find his way towards sobriety. And there's a lot of tells. There's an anecdote where, where I think one of his daughters, or maybe he goes, maybe it's for Scott. He's going to, to a therapist and, and Newman kind of shows up and he takes his shoes off and he puts his stockinged feet up on the, on the uh, therapist's uh, table. And he gets kind of, the therapist is just like, it's very clear that you're not taking this seriously. You're disrespecting me. You're disrespecting the process. And he's quoted, Paul Newman is quoted saying, oh, how dare he? I mean, if, if my coping mechanism for feeling uncomfortable is taking my shoes off and putting my feet up on the coffee table, how dare he say, I am not there. It's like, he's the victim. This is what we do. He's the victim, right? It's not that he's immature and incapable of being present. And so he took his shoes off and put his stocking feet up to say, fuck you to the therapist. No, 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 no. He's the one who's, who's being victimized here when he's actually there to talk with his child and the therapist of his child about how his behavior is affecting things. So there's a lot of telling information here that, um, that I think paints the picture a little bit differently. And I think sober listeners out there will probably have a similar reaction, but I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are if you do watch this. There's another interesting weird choice here, two other things. There's also some times where Laura Linney as Joanne Woodward is kind of narrating home movies. And I don't know if we're supposed to think that this, that interviews that were conducted like in the seventies or the eighties were done where like they're showing home movies to Joanne Woodward and her reactions were taped. That seems pretty doubtful. So if that's not the case, then presumably this is made up. Is this is this Laura Linney as Joanne Woodward pretending to watch home videos and talking about them? We don't know. But it's presented as if these are Joanne's real-time thoughts while watching home movies. And when it's used to narrate footage of, of Scott Newman, um, it's gross. If it was made up, then it's gross. If it wasn't made up, I think we need more context of what that's from, uh, which we don't get. 
The other thing in Scott's death, which is, uh, again, this is all presented in the film. So I'm not like, I'm not making up how they treat these things. I'm reacting to how they present these very difficult moments. As I said, there's a lot of use throughout the film of films that Paul Newman or Joanne Woodward appeared in. And they're using these films to say, either overtly, because Ethan Hawke will say, look right there, he's using his real life and putting it on the screen, even though he doesn't know that Paul Newman is really doing that. And it's not like Paul Newman's interview is saying, I took my real life and put it on the screen in that uh, in that scene from The Verdict. Uh, or in that scene from Robert Altman's uh, Quintet, I was thinking about Scott as I carried the dead body and put it into the water and, and watched it float down an icy uh, river away. But these film clips are used to cover Newman's thoughts about the death of his son. And I'm sorry, when you look into Quintet from Robert, it's just a ridiculous film. Newman looks ridiculous in it. And as great a filmmaker as Robert Altman could be, man, he made some stinkers. And this is one of them. It's like buried in the Altman. <laughs> you know, it's not even talked about. Uh, it's like a sci-fi dystopian Robert Altman film I didn't even know existed. And it's like wall to wall for 15 minutes in the documentary episode because there's there's a scene where Paul Newman carries a dead body and sets it free into the water. It's just, again, for something as as life shattering as the death of your child. I just feel that is so uh, inappropriate to use that, use a film like that or to use that at all. Do, is that where we needed to go to cover these sound bites? Uh, these intimate recollections from shattered people? Uh, although, interestingly, not Scott's mother. We don't hear from her about his death in this. We hear from Paul. <laughs> now, I don't know why that is. Did she not want to discuss it? Uh, with Stewie Stern? Was it not covered in her interview? I don't know. She certainly talks a lot of, there are moments I think where they're talking about Scott and she's talking about Scott, but Scott's death is experienced wholly through Paul Newman's lens, um, which is an interesting choice, let me just say. And I think gives a little more, it, it centers the alcoholic to use the modern parlance, uh, when in fact, the causal relationship between those two things is something that Paul Newman certainly knew was a real thing. And he felt the guilt and the shame of that. And he was unable to break free of it. He was unable to find his way to do anything to really help his son because of his own alcoholism and his own issues. There's a great Arthur Penn quote that's used to talk about this couple and it's used to talk about this level of fame. He says, the miracle is that anybody survives this. And he's right. For that, the film is worthwhile because it does show you that they were real people who struggled with mundane, real things and any relationship struggles with. It's really, I think, a rewarding picture of marriage and the image of marriage that's given is realistic and it's not... Um, it's not rose-colored. Um, it's that you choose to go through life together and and sacrifices and choices and all of these things are made in service to the th this thing that's greater than yourself, this, this subsumation of your ego for 
this greater good, this greater life that you and your children can have together if everyone is present and functioning. Um, I mean, ultimately, the film does speak to that, even though, to me, there's a sadness attached to it because it doesn't feel that Paul was ever really, truly able to get free from it. Although, there are some great anecdotes at the end where he does go to therapy with a daughter who was having trouble later in his life and, uh, and gets a lot out of it and never misses a session and, and, and indeed goes to the therapist himself for many sessions after uh, their joint sessions. And that's all well and good, uh, but a lot of alcoholics will take a lot of steps other than the one step they probably should have taken. So uh, there is an arc, there is a progress that we go through here. So I, I mean, I could keep talking about this forever, but I've already talked for an hour and 15 minutes about it. I think as a work of art, it provoked thought it got me thinking it it affected me emotionally for that it's obviously a success it's not something you can just dismiss it's interesting there are choices made that are interesting the device is worthy of scrutiny and i think there's places where it really works and i think there's places where it really doesn't work unfortunately two of the big places it doesn't work are probably the two most important places um as talented as they are including in laura linney for whatever reason, thankless task maybe, the just, I don't know what it is, but those are two voices we should have and could have heard from themselves in some fashion about this stuff. And that may have been enough, I don't know. Uh, I think it puts too much import and weight on those performances and you never escape the fact, or at least I never escape the fact that it's George Clooney and, and Laura Linney uh, talking about, not as Paul Newman, and Joanne Woodward. But I would really recommend you guys watching it, and please do let me know what you think uh, when you do watch it. I will be back in the coming weeks with some interesting episodes. My colleague Rick Brown and I are going to do Over the Edge, which I've been deep, deep diving into for some time, and I'm really excited to talk about that film coming up. And we have some other things on tap for you too. So it is the summer months, so they may be kind of every couple of weeks rather than every week for the next uh, few weeks. But I did end up binging this over the last few days and I wanted to get this episode in. So once again, thank you so much for, for listening and following the podcast. Uh, follow us on our socials, hit us up on Instagram, and we'll be talking to you soon on the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thank you again, as ever, for listening. Mm-hmm.